In the city of Damascus, there was this Christian named Ananias. And God showed up in a vision to Ananias and said, you know that guy Saul? Ananias is like, uh, yeah, the one who's been collecting Christians and taking them to jail. That's the guy. I want you to pay him a visit. He's like, you got to be kidding. No, I want you to go visit Saul. And I want you to proclaim a word over him. And God gives a specific street address. Uh, Acts 9, look it up. God gives a street address for Ananias to go visit Saul. I got to imagine Ananias is like, I think I need like confirmation for this word. I'm not sure I heard it right. Like maybe there's something else. But the invitation that God was giving Ananias is, um, you see Saul. You see the guy who presided over Stephen's execution. You see the guy who's been given orders to collect up both men and women and cart them to Jerusalem to jail. I'm asking you to see Paul. This is your faith-stretching moment, Ananias. You see Saul, but I'm commanding you in faith with your eyes to see someone that I'm declaring my chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Faith is envisioning God's will on earth as it is in heaven, even when it doesn't look like it. It's not something that happens in the head. Faith is not an intellectual exercise. It requires action. If it doesn't have action, it's dead. That's what James says. You can't think your way into God's kingdom coming on earth. Let me just sort of visualize it in theory. Like it's got to, re it's got to cost you something. Faith requires action. The, the hall of faith, it's called. It's a... Uh, it's a chapter in Hebrews, and it's this list of people. All of them put their selves on the line, put their action on the line. They acted. That's what makes them a Hall of Faith uh, member, recipient. And most of them didn't even see the thing that they were acting to see happen. They didn't even see the fruition of that thing. They believe so much that they're willing to put their lives on the line and walk it out. That's faith. Even by the end of your life, you don't see it, but you still act as if it is. And when the disciples in the early church decided, hey, there's too much income disparity. If the kingdom's coming, like if this is good news to the poor, why don't we just all put our money together? And like maybe those who have too much will have enough and those who have too little will have enough. Like this act of faith, let's live it out in the now as if it were real. Oh, but that could be messy. Oh yeah, it was messy. You know, Acts 2 and 4, they're putting it together and they're enjoying life. Acts 6 and things blow up. It's like, hey, certain people are being left out 
when we distribute things, especially to the widows, and it's the um, less cool widows, it's the Greek-speaking widows, it's the less kosher widows who seem to be getting left out. Like, it was a mess. And they said, well, how about the less kosher folk do the distribution? Like, we will entrust the purse strings to those who are being excluded and hope that they don't, you know, pay back those of us who've been excluding them. Like, they had to work it out. But still, there's this act of faith, even though it's not perfect, even though it's messy. You know, it was years before Saul really stepped into his Paul-ness, I don't know what Ananias encountered in uh, that room on Straight Street in Damascus. It wasn't the Paul that we see in Scripture. He's a guy who's disoriented, who's blind, both uh, spiritually and physically, and yet Ananias acted, and yet the disciples acted. Faith is an act. It's not a thought. It's living out the kingdom. It's living out God's will as if it were. Uh, We're starting a new series today, the month of April, May, and June. We're going to be looking at neighborly faith, neighborly hope, neighborly love. Very intentionally talking about locating faith, hope, and love in neighborhoods and locating faith, hope, and love in this neighborhood, specifically. Um, So today I'm going to be talking about neighborly faith as it relates to the larger neighborhood that we're in. I'll specifically focus on our district, District 13. What's faith look like? What's the kingdom look like in District 13? How do I awaken faith to believe God's kingdom in this district as it is in heaven. And next Sunday, April 18th, Peter's going to be talking about neighborly faith as it relates to the university. We're technically in that district, even though we look across the street at District 13, our address is in 8, which is the, the student neighborhood. Neighborly faith, what's faith for us as we believe for God in the neighborhood of the students on this side of Regent Street. And then on April 25th, neighborly faith in the triangle, Doug Hunt. Doug and Marianne have been very invested in the last years, especially in the triangle. What's faith look like across the street here in the triangle? And then in May, neighborly hope in those three settings with these three different perspectives. And then in June, neighborly love. And the testimony Sundays, May 2nd and in June, we're going to try to locate those in a local park. We'll see right now they're not opening up the shelters for rental uh, or for reservation. So we'll see if at least one of those two, we can do testimony Sundays outside in this neighborhood. And you might be thinking about how do I see faith, hope, and love lived out either in your neighborhood where you live or in this neighborhood. Those will be the kinds of testimonies we'll be calling for. There's an extra Sunday in May. We're locating that on uh, uh, Pentecost Sunday, the 25th, I think it is. We might do that outside too. Um, So that's our journey for the next three months. Faith, hope, and love.
And we're, we're placing that in the neighborhood. You know, it'd be easy to preach uh, ethereally on faith and hope and love. But unless it's rooted in flesh and blood and on streets and bricks and with buildings and cars and people, I don't think it's worth much. We want to talk about what faith, hope, and love look like lived out in our church neighborhood. And I'm sure you're like, great, but I don't live in the church neighborhood. Jesus called the disciples to Jerusalem and Judea. There is a calling on you that goes beyond your zip code. It includes your zip code. And I believe that what we teach in this series will have implications for where you live. But if you're part of Faith Community Bible Church, if, if you count this community as those people of faith in Madison that you're journeying with, then you're called to this neighborhood. And you can love more than one neighborhood. And you can serve more than one neighborhood. And you can, with faith eyes, act and see the kingdom of God coming in more than one neighborhood. I'm sure the early church, as they were scattered throughout Jerusalem in those days, they were gathering in the temple area. That's where the action was. They were seeing their faith lived out where they went to church, so to speak. That's why we're focusing on this neighborhood. You will be my witnesses. It's really just what kind of witness are you? Wherever you are, you will be my witnesses. This isn't just a spot where you show up. Um, I've been going to this church for 35 years. And every time we've had a move, there's been this wrestling with the leaders. Lord, where, are you, where have you called us to? This is not an easy place to locate a church. Every time God says, I want you here. There's a way that the kingdom of God as a lighthouse, as an outpost, needs to be established, and you're the ones through whom I want to establish something. That You're not the only ones, but you're some of them. Don't move. Don't go to other neighborhoods. I want this church in this neighborhood. And that's been the clear word every time we've had a move, including the move here. And now as it looks like we're either developing this spot or possibly moving, we keep hearing that. Stay here. There's something I have for you here. And it's not that we bring God here. It's that God has brought us here. God's already been here for quite some time. Ever since the Ho-Chunk people were here, God was here amongst them, revealing God's will. It's like, oh, there's another group. I want to call them into this place, into this territory. This place has a history, and we're becoming part of that history and part of that future, and there is a God calling. If you attend this church, there's a God calling on you to love this neighborhood, this place that you attend. To properly engage the faith action, I think we've got to acknowledge the hard things about this area. Like, if it doesn't require risk, if it doesn't require sacrifice, if there's nothing 
kingdomless, then it doesn't require any faith. There's some faith that needs to be applied to see more fully God's kingdom here in District 13 as it is in heaven. One of the things, uh, there's a map of the district just to give you an idea of this area. I hope you hear babies in the background because like any environment that does not have a baby is artificial, all right? I want parents to be free to have babies making noise here. That's fine. I appreciate that some of us struggle with ADD and it's going to be a little distracting, but like that's reality. Babies are reality and baby sounds are reality. And if there's not a baby sound, you're in an artificial environment. So just a word. Bless the babies and the kids. This is a place where it's okay for there to be noise. Oh, sorry. Yeah, back to that map. So District 13, you can, you know, kind of runs along uh, Regent Street and then stretches down Monroe, a little bit behind, like the bike path, if you've been down there, on one side, all the way to Odana. Like, and then the other side is like reaching down Park Street and including Olin, Turnville Park, almost to, uh, almost to uh, the Alliant Energy Center. District 13 are these big arms that stretch out around the Arboretum, around Lake Wingra. It's a great hugging district. Early Madison was in this area, arms stretching out around Monroe Street down to uh, Odana, and then uh, around uh, the, the lake and the bay, almost down to the Alliant Energy Center. I don't think God necessarily sees district lines. I think God does see district lines. I think God's uh, will and calling can, you know, be beyond them. But that's where my focus on faith in this district and the history of this district is, is um, somewhat checkered. There's a, there's 170 years of racism in this area, in the, in the town of Madison. This was the town of Madison. This district was the town of Madison for a lot of years. But, um, you know, Henry Dodge in 1840 forcibly removed the Ho-Chunk people living here, like sent troops to round them up and cart them off to Nebraska. And talk about a trail of tears. Here are people who've been here for generations. This is where their grandparents were raised and where they raised their grandkids. And at gunpoint, they're being scooped up and loaded up and taken away. It is a form of genocide, even if not all of them were killed. I mean, it was just an awful, awful experience for these people who lived in this spot. Likely there was an encampment, maybe even on this property here. Um, between the lakes, I mean, it's just a perfect place for, which is why Henry Dodge forcibly removed. Like, this is a perfect place. We don't want anyone else here. That's an awful legacy that lives on in certain ways. Um, you know, a black man was almost lynched here on King Street in 1839. Mob gathered him up and were ready to string him up. He was rescued, but that marks 
of place. That marks the land. The land remembers that. And the shadow of that stretches out, which is why Madison is such a hard place for people of color, especially black residents. Like there's a living history of racism in this area. You know, uh, in the 1850s, when the Wisconsin Supreme Court gave the right to vote to black folk, Madisonians were overwhelmingly opposed to that. What do you mean? No way, not in our town, not in this neighborhood. We need to set something up to be sure that we don't give, even though the state has done it, we need to be sure that black folk don't vote in our town. That's a heavy shadow in District 13, probably extending beyond that. Um, And so what we're looking at for the kingdom of God to come in faith It's got to address this legacy of racism, of displacement of people. Poverty's also been at least 100 years in this neighborhood. So this strip here, this spot, houses on either side, were the cheapest land in Madison at the turn of the century. So Sicilians who were fleeing poverty in Italy came to this place, to this property. And it was a Sicilian neighborhood. And at the very same time, turn of the the century, the Russians who were carrying out pogroms for Jewish people, those Jews came to this neighborhood with the Italians. And then blacks fleeing slavery came to this neighborhood. High, high concentration. At one point, um, this neighborhood was 70% uh, of the residents were not born in this country. 70%. Like high concentration of immigrants, especially poor, especially from Italy, Sicily, Ireland, and then Jews from Russia, black folk from the South. This neighborhood has been racked by poverty for a hundred years. Um, that's something. What does it mean to have the eyes of faith if that's a solish part of our neighborhood? What's the Paul part? What's the redeemed part look like? And how do we act and live as if that were really going to happen? And that by some miracle, God might use God's people to bring that about or to advance that. Sometimes I I feel like our eschatology, our view of end times, gets in the way of us seeing the kingdom come and will be done. That's in the sweet by and by. I don't know if that's very good news to the poor. Like, oh, okay, I'm living in a desperate place. I'm living under oppression, but, oh, in the sweet by and by, okay, that feels better. I'm not sure practically if that's really good news. What does it mean for us to to hunger and work and act for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven in this neighborhood with racism, with poverty, uh, mental illness, physical illness? Uh, Jordan Espital and I went a couple years ago and chatted with some 
of the folk in the porch light shelter, which is in this area. And this area has experienced homelessness, and, and porch light is a place that helps people who are homeless. And they're just really beautiful, interesting people. Duke, I talked to Duke. Duke had been living on the streets for 40 years. And Mrs. Lopez and James, these are all people that we met and chatted with and recorded. And like, it's not that hard to see Duke as my dad or Mrs. Lopez as my mom, you know, someone who's had some tragedy in life, maybe suffers from some mental illness, maybe some physical problems for which they're unable to pay. How close are we all to the being evicted, or they all probably had social issues. You know, they're, they're, they didn't interview well, let's just put it that way. Like, how close are any of us to that place? And yet these are beautiful image bearers of God who've been impoverished by mental or physical issues, by tragedy in their families, by a catastrophe of some sort that has put them on the streets and they've never been able to climb out. That's a legacy here in this neighborhood. I've been getting to know our District 13 Alder, Tag Evers. Lovely man. Lovely man. I'll, I'll probably bring him here and do an interview. Uh, I did an interview uh, virtually, and uh, I asked Tag about the problems that he sees in District 13. And we talked about the strengths as well, the hopes and the loves. He said, income inequality. Yeah, this has had 100 years of desperate poverty, but some of the wealthiest people in town live in this district. Some of the wealthiest and some of the poorest live together in District 13. You know, there's a certain sadness to extreme wealth, and there's a certain sadness to the existence of extreme poverty, but there is a profound offense in the coexistence of wealth and poverty. Side by side. It's Lazarus at the gate of the rich man here in District 13. Some of the million-dollar homes in the vilest neighborhood and some of uh, the most subsidized basic housing because people haven't been able to get their hands on that first rung just to get a foothold, to get a piece of property so that maybe their kids or grandkids have some sort of inherited wealth. He says this, the, the tragedy of District 13 is income inequality. Top 20%, bottom 20% living together here in this district. So, Tag, what's it look like for the kingdom of heaven to kiss earth on District 13? Here's what he had to say. I guess I would have to go back to really what, um, you know, the calling, I think, and the people of faith would have confronted with poverty, what is the, the choice that one must be faced with, particularly if one's position of privilege is a result of 
of no particular uh, merit of one's own, but rather the portion of inheritance or an advantage, whether it's inherited wealth or just inherited position and able to, to have access to credit, all of which could be denied to others, particularly people of color or folks with uh, mental health challenges and other kinds of challenges. There is the sense of there but the grace of God go I when um, one is confronted with abject poverty or one is confronted with addiction or, or other types of disabilities. And it's humbling. If the prayers were answered, that kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then what I think it would look like is that those who are in a position of privilege would be consciously giving their privilege away and would seek to not just uh, do so from a standpoint of philanthropy of giving money, but also asking themselves, how is it that some people are so poor and others are relatively well off? And really try to examine some of the structural realities around uh, generational poverty and why uh, that generational poverty often lands uh, within the households of those who are black or brown in this country in particular. So if the kingdom of heaven were to come on earth and kiss District 13, it would cause those, particularly my white neighbors and myself and any person of faith and any person of moral conviction to ask the hard questions. In what ways am I complicit? What ways have my, are my standing in life benefited from the fact that I am white? And what ways have generational wealth accumulated for me, but not for others? And then what can I do about it? So there is that. Um, but just on a real practical level, if, if in my prophetic imagination, if, I, if this were already the case, if we flipped the switch and we could see it happening, we would see people who were choosing to live in community, choosing to share of their wealth, choosing to perhaps to buy property and take it off the speculative real estate market, buy land, collectively buy land, put it in a land trust so that it is not uh, bid up in price and be able to create affordable housing for those who need it. And to really explore what that means to have a, a be able to offer permanent affordability uh, to folks who need it. So there would be a, a lot less fear and anxiety about holding on to one's place of privilege. And there'd be a lot more giving uh, generous, not just out of generosity, but out of kind of a, out of justice, out of call for justice.
not just giving of our excess, but uh, a justice that calls for a realignment. That to me um, is what happened in the early church. It's what you see in the book of Acts. And the fact that it doesn't happen that often visibly in the church today probably reflects about how in some people's mind, the gospel is not a compelling story. It's not a narrative that causes people to say, mind how they love one another. What a, what a powerful testimony. You know, we both wept as we prayed for this district. So uh, appreciate his long suffering desire for this area and his love of people of faith and um, appreciation that they bring something here. But his call for us to protect housing for low income folk and to live in community. Man, you ever hear a public official call us to live out Acts 2 and 4 in their district? That's his hope. Um, you know, housing and cities and streets are part of the prophetic call Jesus' followers were invited to invest in. Jesus gave his first sermon. Here's a kid probably right out of some kind of rabbinical training. We don't know a lot about Jesus' uh, life beyond carpentry or some kind of skill like that. His first sermon, the, the kid comes to give his first sermon and he opens the scroll to Isaiah. I want to preach on Isaiah 61. See, it wasn't a codex that had those chapters. He opens it. Isaiah 61, and he just about gets himself killed as he gives this prophetic announcement that includes streets and housing and buildings. Isaiah 61, 1 through 4, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And interesting, he leaves out this portion and the day of vengeance uh, of our God. He, he redacts that in his sermon. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They'll be called oaks of righteousness. A planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And they will rebuild the ancient ruins. And restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. A little further down in that passage, it says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. 
In my faithfulness I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations, their offspring among the people. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. Um, you know, this passage is announcing the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus preached about, mostly. It, he had a one-note sermon. It was all about the kingdom. You know, what, what do we learn after he goes to have after his resurrection, during this period, so to speak? Forty days preaching about the kingdom to his disciples. Special uh, seminar, kingdom seminar. Like, now's the time. This is, we're going to, I'm going to teach you a lot in these 40 days because then it's on you. All about the kingdom. Kingdom come. It, this is Jesus' emancipation proclamation. I'm decreeing that this is now what you read. This rebuild and restore and renew. You're going to restore generational devastation. You're going to rebuild ruins and you're going to renew cities. And as we know, Emancipation Proclamation in America for slaves has taken more than 150 years and we're still trying to work it out. Like, it's still not quite there. And yet we're trying to make it reality. 2,000 years, there's still a journey. This idea, as Jesus speaks about, and, and the they, it's interesting, that they will rebuild or whatever, I think that refers to the people he's talking about in verses 1 through 4. You know, the poor and the brokenhearted and the prisoners and the mourners and grievers, they're going to be the ones who are going to rebuild and renew. It's not just this metaphorical reality. Though the, the first hearers of Isaiah, they've got to be thinking as they're looking around a devastated Judea because of the Babylonians, okay, this is hope for the, the physical now Jerusalem. And they'd be right. You know, 70 years later or so, we get Nehemiah and Ezra. And maybe for generations after, there was a sense, or, or, or maybe for some in modern times, metaphorical. Yeah, there, there are metaphorical prisoners and metaphorical oppressed and metaphorical poor. And this kingdom is proclaiming that now's the time for you to come out of those forms of oppression. But I don't think it's only metaphorical, and I don't think it's only about the restoration of Jerusalem in the days of Nehemiah. I believe that there are realities to the resurrection of Jesus that make a difference in the here and now for cities and for streets, and for people, and for places, and for economies, and for attitudes. Like the kingdom has implications in the real world, not just in theory for those things. It is spiritual restoration, and it's literal restoration. You, you get that passage, God loves justice, and he hates wrongdoing. He loves justice. What do those who associate with this God love and hate then? Right? What's it mean for us to love justice in District 13? 
if we really, really love justice and we really hate wrongdoing, is there any practical outworking in our limbs for loving justice and hating wrongdoing in this spot where we attend church? If not, then the gospel's not a compelling story, as Brother Evers says. Like, this kind of ethereal uh, narrative, not very compelling if it's in your head. But if this is a reality that you're walking out in messiness, oh, it's not magical. Oh, there are mystical elements to it, to be sure. But it is messy, and you're not always going to get it right. And sometimes you'll make a bigger mess in the attempt to try to do good. Like, that's part of the journey. Oh, then let's just talk about it in our heads. Let's just pretend like this is... Uh, an intellectual exercise. Let's not try to live it out if it's going to be messy. Like, don't let that stop us from loving justice and hating wrongdoing in the face of racism and poverty and income inequality and mental illness and physical disability. What's it look for like for little Christs to be coming in and out of this neighborhood? That's what Christian means, right? The wasn't maybe super... Uh, helpful or uh, gracious. Little Christ, let's call them Christians. Little Christ. What's it mean for little Christ to love this neighborhood? Isaiah 58, which comes before this Isaiah 61 passage, also talks about this. Your people, it says in Isaiah 58, and, and so this is like... God through Isaiah is saying, you know the kind of religious fasting you're doing? Stop it, please. Would you just stop? You want to know what fasting looks like? Take a temperature on how the poor and the naked are doing, and you'll know how well you're fasting. Take a look at the oppression around you. Take a look at the yokes around you. I don't want any more of that fasting. Let me tell you about fasting. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You'll be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. There's that alliteration again. I love the rebuild, repair, restore. That's what it looks like for religious people to follow God. It's not the um, religious activity, a, a day of kind of self-flagellation with your fasting or of just singing songs, as Amos says. It's, it's not about that, though I believe that there are ways that are coming together and are worshiping together fuel our action. Like, you people are blessed to feed the hungry, and to end exploitation and oppression. Uh, you're going to be yoke breakers. Now, I'm a pretty good yoke breaker. I've broken plenty of yokes. But I've not, I don't know to what extent I've contributed to the breaking of yokes. That is, something placed on a person by an outside force 
in order to benefit someone else. The yoke of oppression. God says in Isaiah 58, not only do away with that, for those of you who are making yokes and putting them on people, I want you to go around and break every yoke. You guys are yoke breakers, and you see oppression, you see someone who's yoked, and that yoke might be an attitude that has put something on someone else. That may be a structure that has yoked someone. That may even be, there are ways that we yoke ourselves that need to be... I want you to find those things, and I want you to break the pieces out of those. You're yoke breakers. In these cities, these ruined cities, these devastated places, these generationally deprived places where generational wealth has been kept from certain people, because there are yokes there, and you guys have a role to rebuild, repair, and restore, and it's going to take some yoke breaking to do it. So throughout this series, we're going to look at how to live this out, how to break yokes, not yolks. Do we even say yolk? Do we even pronounce the L? Maybe it sounds the same. On campus, in the triangle, in this neighborhood. What's the call of yoke breakers in these places? Really, physically, like with our words and actions and our presence, how do we walk that out with hands and feet? You know, there may be some in this series who feel called to move or buy property here. They to do what Tag Ever says. Let's put our money together, and before this property escalates in price, let's keep some sort of rent uh, base on this so that people who are only getting minimum wage could actually afford to live here. And there may be some radical invitations there. It may be as simple as hosting a student in your home for a season. Or it might be, um, there's some community centers around here, like the neighborhood house. And they offer programs. Go tutor a, someone at the neighborhood. I'll go get invested in, you know, there are places God's already got stuff going on. We don't have to start it all. We can join with what's already happening. There's plenty of things already happening. Talk to Tag. Talk to others. They'll, they'll invite you in. You know, you just got an email from Doug and Marianne about a community garden that's getting planted here. May 1st, roll up your sleeves, bring your spades and shovels, and go help folk in the triangle plant a garden. We're simply asking you to become present here, not just to attend on this corner. And I know there are capacity issues. There's grace here. And also, you don't have to be called to all three areas. You can just choose. There, there doesn't have to also be some mystical thing like, oh, what am I supposed to do? Am I, does God want me to work in the triangle or with students or in the district? Just choose. And just do stuff. Like, it doesn't have to be a lightning bolt encounter. There's freedom. There's freedom in this church to love in a variety of ways in this place. I think what I'm asking on a practical level, for some of you, if there's time, 
after church to take the long way to your car and just open eyes of faith. What do you see? If the kingdom were to come and kiss this area, what would it look like? Can you envision it? Begin by just looking with your eyes and asking God, what do you see here? What's the soul part of this area that you see a Paul? Can you give me those eyes? Lord, for the seeds that have been sown and tears that have been sown in this district, we ask for fruit. Can we see some glimmer of your kingdom yet this year in 2021? Show us what that looks like. Give us eyes to faith, eyes of faith to see it happening and then courage to act as if it will when we spend our money and our time and our energy here in this corner of the city. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a family meeting on Tuesday. I hope you're able to join us. Kind of a joint family meeting and uh, house group leader meeting. And then if you want to hang out virtually, there'll be a link in the chat to join uh, a Zoom call with others. That's it. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord in your neighborhood and in this one. Thanks be to God.